Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Nitin Tandon. Nitin is the global chief information officer of Vanguard, the world's second largest asset manager with about $8 trillion in assets under management. Nitin joined Vanguard in 2019 as chief technology officer, and he's been the global chief information officer since late 2021. He has a remarkable purview, which includes customer-facing technology, and he's helped to drive greater automation, cloud adoption, and personalization through Vanguard's offering. He joined the firm after 16 years at Deloitte Consulting, where he ended his tenure as a partner in the financial services technology practice. Nitin, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Peter, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Well, let's begin with Vanguard, uh, a, a, a business certainly that is so expansive that I would imagine most people who are listening to this have some familiarity with it. Uh, also so expansive, perhaps you'll get into some of those details uh, of its size that there are even investors in it. But nevertheless, if you wouldn't mind providing a bit of a, an overview of the business in some greater context, that would be cer- certainly be helpful. So like you mentioned, Peter, Vanguard is the world's second largest asset manager. Uh, with about $8 trillion in assets under management, and we have over 50 million clients. Our mission, Peter, is to take a stand for all investors, to treat them fairly, and to maximize their chance of investment success. We are owned by our clients, and the clients are the center of everything that we do. So if you take an example, let's say a fund was the lowest cost in, in the industry, they would typically have no incentive to lower the expense ratio any further but not for us because we don't have any private or public shareholders. Our clients are our owners. So any return that we can offer goes back in the form of low expense ratios. So that's one of the reasons you will see, if you look at the asset weighted average expense ratio of our funds, it's about eight basis points. That corresponding number for the industry is about 47 basis points or so. So in terms of the products we provide, Peter, it's a, low cost but high quality investment products across you know a broad range of investment styles so we do both active and index also across asset classes so either equities or fixed income regions so we offer domestic as well as international funds and then both in private and public markets we also provide advice which is tailored to our individual investors needs it puts their interest first and foremost and it's offered at a reasonable uh, and transparent all-in fee for the advice. And there are two variants of that. We offer what we call digital advisor, which is our robo offer. And then we offer personal advisor services where you get a chance to work with a certified financial planner who will create personalized plans for you. Going back to your point on you know businesses, we have four lines of businesses, Peter. The first is personal investor, which is our direct-to-consumer channel where now, clients come to us to buy products and services from us, and we have a relationship with them. We also have an institutional investor group where we work with large enterprises on retirement plans and record keeping. Then we have financial advisory services, which is working, which is our intermediary channel. So working with helping either advisors at banks, you know, registered investment advisors or broker dealers serve their clients. And then last but not the least, you know, Internationally, we have uh, our biggest presence in Australia and in UK, where we offer both D2C and B2B in those markets. That's a quick overview of Vanguard. A good one. I really appreciate that, uh, Nitin, and, and certainly speaks to the scale and breadth of, of the, the company and its offerings. Uh, let's talk briefly, if you wouldn't mind, about your role as Chief Information Officer. I mentioned you've been in role since late 2021. 
Uh, talk a bit about what's within your purview in that role. Absolutely. I report to uh, Chairman and CEO Tim Buckley, and I wear two hats in the enterprise theater. The first is I'm a member of Vanguard senior staff. So in that role, I wear an enterprise hat and I'm helping you know Tim and other peers of mine run Vanguard. Second, I'm responsible for all of our technology globally. And I classify that maybe into four categories. So the first is our distribution, all the tech supporting our distribution channels. So the four businesses that I just spoke about, all the tech enabling personal investor, institutional, FAS, or international. Also the technology enabling you know, our investment and advice products. Then there's technology that supports our shared services. So think you know, data centers, cloud, you know, crew technology, uh, technology supporting HR, marketing, you know, legal risk, et cetera. And then last but not the least is a uh, chief data and analytics office. So we consolidated all the data and analytics functions across the organization about a year and a half ago into IT, hired a new CDAO. So CDO is also a part of IT. So that's the functional purview you know, of my second hat. But if I step back, Peter, and just talk about you know, the role technology plays in our business, right? Tech is core and central to everything we do. 95% of our client interactions are digital. We don't have any brick and mortar. And Vanguard has always been a strong believer in the power of technology. You know, you mentioned I'd worked, you know, at Deloitte and Deloitte in financial services. I've seen a number of different companies, and there's always this conversation about, you know, IT having a seat at the table or what kind of a seat or who has what seat at the table. I've never felt that or seen that here. Not in not in the time that I worked, you know, as a consultant with Vanguard, and not since I joined Vanguard either. Like IT has always had a seat at the table. IT has helped us define our future, you know, and our agenda. And there are really no walls between business and IT. So we have cross-functional product teams with business and IT working together in agile ways, building products and services that are client aligned. So I'd say our focus in technology, Peter, like in everything else we do is, you know, how do we improve client outcomes? So how do we develop the best performing investment products? How do we offer trusted advice and perspectives? And then a world-class client experience. So that's always a North Star. Phenomenal. And really interesting to hear more about the extent to which the business operates digitally and the interactions with customers are digital as well. And I, I would love to understand a little bit more about um, some of the ways in which you serve those clients digitally. I know, for instance, that there's a, a trend in many businesses, but certainly one in yours as well, towards greater degrees of automation, uh, personalization, as you think about that uh, customer experience and the interactions with it, and ultimately the advice you're providing to them as well. You mentioned that a bit in your overview uh, of technology and digital within the the, the, um, uh, the operation. Can you talk, expand on that a little bit further as to some of the methods that you're using in order to continue to advance in those ways? Advice, Peter, is close to our heart. So, you know, I mentioned we are passionate about clients' investor outcomes. And if you look at an investor's outcomes, it's driven by the funds that they own. So we provide low-cost funds and also the advice that they get on those funds. And the effect that we had you know, in the funds and in the investing market, we want to have a similar effect in the advice market. We want to make advice more accessible. We wanted to make it more affordable and we want to make it more easy to use so that our clients you know, can retire comfortably, they can send their kids to college, you know, buy their dream home or whatever their financial you know, goal or objective may be, right? 
We strongly believe, to your point on personalization, we strongly believe in the value of personalized advice uh, versus your rule of thumb or maybe more heuristic-based approaches. In fact, I think 2022, we published you know, a study that talks about the value of personalized advice. It takes certain scenarios and shows you how to quantify the potential value of personalized advice. And one of the key statements in that is, the more personalized the advice, the more value it can deliver. So our current advice engine, Peter, already build plans and portfolios that are very specific to a, a client's financial goals. In fact, our digital advisor offer that I spoke about earlier, the robo-advisor, was rated number one you know, across the competitive landscape by Morningstar recently. We're further enhancing, you know, using AI and ML, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, we're further enhancing that model to support even more parameters that's going to drive the hyper-personalization that you were talking about. At the same time, we're also experimenting, like I'm sure everybody else is in these days, uh, with generative AI, which we think can have significant impact on advice, like in three distinct ways. Like first, how do you engage more effectively with clients? How do you personalize the cli a client interaction? which becomes far more conversational than a structured website, right? How do we support our advisors better? How do we offer them all the data we can on our clients, you know? In some ways, you can you can almost make the chief economist available because all those insights can be at their fingertips when they're having a client conversation. And also importantly, Peter, how do we, you know, automate more of the routine tasks that an advisor does, you know, whether it's capturing something or generating content, right? using generative AI so we can free up more of their time to spend with their clients. So those are areas that'll allow us to scale the personalization that we were that we were talking about. Now that said, I will say that like despite all the automation, we still see a need, you know, for human advisors who are perhaps, you know, best at things like uncovering a client's, you know, unset goal or needs, right? That they may have trouble expressing. Or maybe let's say there's a market downturn and providing emotional coaching and support, or even following through and persuading them to take the best course of action that may be in their interest. Because all of us, you know, sometimes can take inst instinctive, emotional decisions and actions, which may not be the best for our investment portfolio. So that those are areas where I still see a human advisor playing a key role. We've also found that you know advice is like a highly considered purchase. Not everybody is going to be comfortable handing over the keys of their financial future, you know, right over to someone else, or they may only be comfortable handing it to a human advisor, let's say. But there may be others who will jump all in on the digital advisor, and then there may be someone who is in between. So our strategy on that and is Peter to meet people where they are. So we are building solutions that may be fully digital, that have a personal advisor, and we're also experimenting with hybrid. Yeah, interesting. And clearly, as you described your purview, you and your team have a consequential role to play in all of this. And I wonder, how do you work um, across uh, the organization to ensure that you are drawing in the right sorts of perspectives as you're developing the technology to deliver what you've described? Um, you know, Clearly, there's expertise in a variety of different areas, some technical, some not, that need to impact the work that you're doing. How do you think about that cross-functional collaboration uh, and, and ways of optimizing it? When it comes to advice specifically, you know, we have a function called enterprise advice within my organization, and that's responsible for both advice methodology as well as platforms. 
So the methodology team is responsible for thought leadership, investor research, and ultimately, you know, how to interpret our investment methodology into an advice engine. So what we call advice methodology, right? That powers all of our advice engines. And then the platform team is focused on building, you know, core building blocks or APIs of our advice offer. So think like the cash flow engine or the portfolio construction engine or, you know, tax loss harvesting or, you know, retirement calculator. So we have a number of different modular components that we can stitch together for client offers as and when needed. So this enterprise advice team then works with our distribution businesses to help and roll out client specific offers. So that's where, that's how the digital advisor and the personal advisor offers, you know, come into play and go to, go to market. And we are continuously adding new capabilities. So like last year in a down market scenario, we added tax loss harvesting which helped our investors, you know, improve their returns, you know, despite a barrier. So that's how the advice offer comes into play. But if I step back and talk more about ways of working and, you know, the, off, the, the operating model is slightly different when it comes to our investment products or supporting our distribution technology. But broadly, Peter, we, we adopted about two and a half, three years ago, we moved to new ways of working. We've been agile for over a decade, but we moved to new ways of working where we have cross-functional product teams with a typically a business product owner and an IT team and as different functional experts as and when may be needed. But the idea is, you know, the Amazon model of a two pizza team that is aligned to a client-specific outcome that is working across organizational, you know, boundaries uh, in a cross-functional way. So that's been our operating model you know, in new ways of working. And it's, it's been really helpful because that small size team is laser focused on the product and services that it's developing and is working on continuously improving those products and services. So that's our general or broader operating model across with some nuances, you know, by business. I just give you an advice flavor of that. Fantastic. I appreciate that, Nitin. It really adds a lot of color to what you've described as well. And I, I, I'm curious, there's a lot that you've just that you've already uh, discussed that uh, is emblematic of recent innovations. Uh, generative AI is a, a, a consequential example of that. Uh, um, I, I can only imagine it's it's months <laughs> that, that you and the team have been contemplating this. And I, I, before we get into the specifics of one innovation or another, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the way in which you think about engaging in new uh, new technologies or new innovations. Are there portions of your team that have that as their squarely their responsibility? Is it something that's distributed more broadly across the team? How do you think about that? You mentioned I joined Vanguard as CTO. One of the things I did, Peter, when I you know handed over my role to the to our current CTO, Mike, I said, Mike. I, one thing I wanted to do, but I wasn't able to do, was establish an emerging technology research function. And Mike established it. So we now have, an, this is about a couple of years, we established uh, an emerging technology research function. And what that does, Peter, is proactively you know, scans uh, you know, the industry, the market for emerging technologies that may be applicable or relevant to us. And a couple of things are important when we look at those emerging technologies, right? Hey, what is the business applicability? and what are investor, what is going to be the investor outcome. Those two remain our North Stars. We don't get into technology for technology's sake, but we're looking for technologies that can help drive better in investor returns or, and can have some business value for us, right? Uh, and what we do then of all the technologies, and this is difficult to describe, but it's probably better seen visually, is 
we literally plot them around time to maturity as well versus business impact and we come up with a nine box and say okay depending on where a technology lands on the nine box we will take a different posture so we might experiment with you know technologies that we think are further out as an example big believer in quantum but i don't think it's yeah i think it's a little bit further out right genia is happening here and now it was probably we always thought it had a high value it shot across you know our evaluation framework to to becoming more relevant today like it did for everybody else last you know november december time frame right i think suffice it to say that we take a deliberate and informed position on each technology our overall posture peter also is you won't see us blazing the trail on something new where value has not been proven because we don't want to risk our investors money but as soon as it has you will see us leading the pack of fast followers we we wait until the technology's you know value can be proven and once it is established we'll quickly you know adopt it i can give you an example of that when we talk more about cloud but that's a overarching approach to emerging technologies and you know happy to talk about which ones are in what phase of evaluation or i can tell you hey what are the key elements like what bets have we made which are informing our current technology strategy wherever you want to go i would love that why don't we start there i think it's a great great place yeah. to continue with so if if i think of you know i i probably highlight three pillar that are central to our technology strategy today right one is we wanted to drive more agility in our business so responding faster to a client's needs so we been on a modernization journey for the last 3 years or so we've been modernizing our application portfolio all the way down to the mainframe and moving them to public cloud about 3 years in we are 66% you know through that modernization journey and we are already starting to see benefits so our teams can now deploy capabilities in days as opposed to what used to be you know months and quarters previously you know our resiliency scores have improved like our systems are far more resilient we've seen a 70% reduction in major incidents this is despite driving a 5x change volume through the same infrastructure uh, our client satisfaction scores are about 30 to 40% better we have released a brand new mobile app brand new website you know in the last uh, 12 to 18 months and that's resulted in a better client experience and better csat scores so those are some of the benefits of you know modernization that we already starting to see but i think we are still you know on our early journey we'll continue to evolve our client experience speeder but not in a way yes we we want to be as contemporary and modern a client experience that as anybody else has out there you know as intuitive but again in keeping with our mission where we think we can differentiate on client experiences in making better investors and driving better investor outcomes so if you have some money sitting in cash or if you didn't do tax loss harvesting can i nudge you you know potentially to do that and help you make better investment decisions or get you know closer to your financial goals so that's so that is the first area right we're using cloud uh, to drive more agility second one is you know we're also looking at improving our productivity peter across the end to end product development life cycle so broadly if you think of you know ideate uh create and release you know ideation is just idea formation of software development creation is the software development process itself and then release is deploying and in production we've solved for and a lot of people have solved for like the create phase a long time ago the agile revolution like i said you know is decades old right 
in the last few years, we've been working on the release phase with DevOps and Dora being key enablers there. So we feel good about how we optimize the release phase. But the ideate phase is 60%, industry average, not ours, is about 60% of the time. How do we optimize that? And I'll give you some in interesting industry stats that made me sit up in my chair when I, when I saw them. And I said, I want my version of these stats. 8% of the work planned by agile teams gets delivered. 20% of the features get canceled. 35% of teams have zero capacity for the next 12 months. And 95% of IT orgs don't know what their productivity is. Like those are staggering figures. And this research is done by Mick Kirsten and team who wrote the book, you know, Project to Product. Um, so we've been working with, with his team to say, okay, I, we want to know what those numbers look like in our environment. You know, we can't improve what we can't measure. I for sure hope those numbers are better for us, but we won't know until we measure it. So we're working on an end-to-end -to -end tool chain to understand the instrument and then improve, you know, our metrics. And I think a big focus is going to be in that ideate phase as well. So that's another area we're working on right now. And then last but not the least is uh, better insights for our clients and for our crew members using data analytics and AI ML. Like I mentioned, we consolidated a CDA organization about 18 months ago. We want to provide better you know, operational insights for our client teams, you know, both our service teams as well as product teams, better client experience for our clients and you know, use AI ML for better automation. We, we, we started to talk about you know, Gen AI and potential uh, uses of Gen AI as well in driving better insights. That's another big focus area for us. We, we're thinking of Gen AI, at least in the short term, Peter, in three key areas like productivity. So we've rolled out uh, GitHub Copilot to all our developers, you know, for code assist development. We are also prioritizing content creation. Um, so our marketing team is using generative AI for content creation use cases. And then of course, knowledge management and search is a big use case, whether it's in the support or advice. Those, So those are some areas where we are doing early experimentation with generative AI. And may I ask what, what sort of, um, how have you thought about the security aspects of that? One of the concerns, of course, that some people have regarding generative AI is as it's so new, how do you think about uh, uh, how much to, to information to load into it uh, in order to get better outcomes from it? And may I ask from a governance perspective, how have you thought about that? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Absolutely, Peter. So when when I mention our experiments, those are all private instances. So if you went on our our network, you would not be able to get to chat GPT, only because we know any data we put in there is going to be you know, going into a public database and we don't want that. So all our experiments are, are in private instances. We are also in all the use cases we have right now, we have a human in the loop. The risks of gen generative AI are non-trivial, you know, besides just data, you know, also we have, we have to solve for bias. We have to solve for hallucination. We have to solve for, hey, what data has the model been trained on? So those are some of the aspects that we are looking to fine tune through our experimentation process. And that's why we don't want to jump straight to anything that exposes our clients, you know, right away to this, because we think the risks need to be solved before we get there. You know, there are IP implications, there are data security and privacy implications, you know, there are hallucinations to solve for. So those are the things that we are currently looking out for and figuring out how to solve in our, in our experiments. But uh, yeah, all, all our experiments have a human in the loop and are done in a 
private instance for us. So we are using OpenAI's instance on Azure as an example. And I hear echoes of what you mentioned earlier in terms of being a fast follower as opposed to being at the bleeding edge of what this entails. Uh, whether it's regarding Gen AI or beyond, can you talk a little bit about the, the method used in terms of being a fast follower? So number one, it requires identifying a trend that you're going to investigate. Second, it, it, it must entail understanding who is at the bleeding edge, who are you following in essence, and what sorts of uh, you know, either benefits they're accruing from it or or issues that they're identifying as or, or that, that at least you might be able to decipher that have resulted as uh, as a consequence of going early. I, I realize it's going to be different depending upon the technology or the trend that we're talking about, but is, it, is there a, a way to describe how to make a fast followership work? To your point, I don't know if there's one answer, Peter, you mm. know, for that, but I'll, I'll give you two examples, right? I'll give you an example of cloud. And then I'll give you an example. You know, we, we can talk a little bit more about how I'm thinking the Gen AI movie may unfold here. Um, if you look at cloud, back, Vanguard made a, made a commitment to public cloud, saying we'll move everything to public cloud back in 2016. I was still on the consulting side of that equation. So I knew where the financial services industry was. And except for a couple of other financial services institutions, you couldn't find anybody else who would make that bold you know, a declaration at that point in time. What preceded that was a good two years of evaluation and, you know, setting up a landing zone and 18 months of security certification, right? The time frame that Vanguard took between 2014 to 2016 was to wet the technology before becoming a fast follower um, in 2016. In 2016, we made the commitment and we've been on a road. I would say still the first few years of that you know, we went slower than in hindsight, we may have, we, we maybe should have or could have. But 2019 is when we doubled down on that bet and said, you know what, we already believe in this promise. You know, our client experience was decaying and we wanted to improve the client experience rapidly. And this was an opportunity for us to double down and get into improving agility for our clients and delivering capabilities. So we doubled down in 2019 and we were able to do it. What to your question was that decision point or decision criteria, right? Back in 2016 and then in 2019. Uh, in 2016, it was all the confidence that we got in testing and piloting the technology, in getting comfortable with the security controls in our landing zone, and in evaluating the unit economics to make sure it'll work. The only thing then that remained was, okay, are you, are you making a bet on the hype cycle, on Gartner's hype cycle, you know, where, where it is on the upswing or in the trough of disillusionment, or are you capturing it on the, on the end of the path to enlightenment? We want to capture it in the path to enlightenment so we just don't go through the ups and downs. And I think cloud by the time we really doubled down was already there. It's not an imperative that people feel the need to drive immediately so people may have longest journeys on, of cloud adoption, the way, at least I think we like to lead the pack is not taking that when we commit, we want to go and we want to get it done. Whereas you could let this linger for, for a long time in which we typically don't like like long stretching programs. So we like to commit to something, get it done, get reap the benefits, move on to the next thing. To your question, applying it now to what, path, what does that path look for like in Gen AI? Until we have a very clear path to solve for things like hallucinations, bias, IP, 
those for us would be critical capabilities before we can say this becomes more broadly. If we can either control for it or you know the industry evolves to their solutions that solve for it, we would hesitate to go all in before that. I appreciate those answers, really, really uh, thoughtful ones. I, it strikes me, and I know from our past conversations, Nitin, an advantage you have relative to peers of yours who are in you know, B2B organizations, for example, uh, is that you are presumably a, a customer of, of your company as well. And so the products we've been discussing and describing throughout this conversation uh, are, are the same products uh, and offerings and experiences uh, that, that other customers will have as well. And therefore, the insights you might draw, the determination of what's working or what isn't, the thought process of uh, uh, additional bells and whistles, additional um, uh, you know additions to the offering that might be uh, beneficial is something that you can live in addition to uh, providing advice on. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, um, the, the hat that you put on, no doubt, at certain times as a customer of the company and the advantages that gives you as a leader, a, a, a leader in the company in, uh, as well. I, I'll take maybe two different angles at this one, right? The first is what you, what you said, which is when we use our own you know, offers and services, we have a deeper empathy you know, for our clients. It helps us understand you know, their perspectives and their needs better. And as you roll out new products and services, like we have 20,000 crew members, that could be an opportunity or that are an opportunity for beta testing. So I certainly think you know, using our products and services puts us in a position, uh, in a better position to serve our investors and their needs. The second perspective is a little bit more personal. I joined Vanguard, like you said, four years ago, and I wasn't as familiar with our investment philosophy, right? Which is set appropriate goals, make sure you have a balanced portfolio, keep an eye on costs and maintain a long-term perspective. Those are the core four core tenets of our investment philosophy. If you go to our website, we get into a lot more detail about why. But I learned a few things, Peter. First, really understanding those principles and their impact, right? So for example, like 90% of your investment success is having the right asset allocation, which is a mix of stocks, bonds, and cash versus you know, particular investments or securities. I did not realize that earlier. You know, at first blush, you're like, oh, is that really true? It is. 90% of the success is, it boils down to asset allocation. Second is like, timing the market is near impossible. So if, for example, in the last 30 years, you miss the 10 best days of the market, your returns would be half of what they were. You need to know when to enter and when to exit. If you've missed that, and then costs really do matter, so much so that they can be the difference between you being successful versus unsuccessful, right? In 2008, Warren Buffett issued a challenge to the hedge fund industry, famously, where you know his posture was like they were charging exorbitant fees and their fund, they couldn't generate enough returns to justify the fees, right? So his challenge was that over a 10-year period, a low-cost you know, index fund would generate better returns. 10 years later, he won. So like that's, that's the impact of cost. So for me, the demystification and the simplification of investing. You know, investing can, be very, can seem very complex, but it's actually very simple if you follow those four principles. So for me personally, that, that demystification and simplification has been a big advantage, you know, of using our products and services. 
Fascinating. A great overview. Uh, you mentioned, as I did in the introduction, that you spent uh, uh, years advising many companies across this industry. That you, you probably didn't receive an offer from every last one of them, but the extent to which you you developed a filter, no doubt, as to what good looks like, a, a good culture, a good organization, one that, wow, I could see myself potentially fitting or not, as the case may be. I wonder what it was about Vanguard, uh, and maybe this is an opportunity to talk a bit about what is an oftentimes lauded culture, um, some of the attributes of that that made this opportunity consequential and, and attractive to you in the first place. In a line, Peter, it was unlike anything else I'd seen anywhere else in the industry. And I, I never thought I was going to leave my last job because I didn't believe something like this you know, existed. But to describe the culture, maybe in a few attributes, right? Client first, highly collaborative, inclusive, and humble. So client first is like it's a purpose-driven organization. You know, people truly believe and stand for something you know, bigger than themselves. And you know, quarterly earnings, they're motivated to help someone retire better or, you know, to send their kids to college or whatever the financial goals may be. And we are rewarded only when our clients do well. So there's a linkage between uh, our clients doing well and, and us doing well. It's also highly collaborative. We favor leaders who foster teamwork. In most of the other organizations that I've worked in, there are walls of varying height between, you know, divisions, departments, subdivisions. Those walls were so low here. When I, it, was, it surprised me as a consultant when I worked with Vanguard. And then when I joined Vanguard, you know, it was the same. So it was the same from the outside as it was from the inside. And those walls were really low because people have a higher order purpose, you know, around which they align. I think our rotational culture also has something to do with it. So, you know, because you could be in this job today and that job tomorrow, uh, and we look for more competencies and specific skill set when we rotate people and we are, you know, grooming and building leaders who can run and manage Vanguard or different parts of Vanguard, that rotational culture, you know, tends to limit parochial tendencies that typically lead to territorialism and politics, et cetera. Like we have zero tolerance and people who are self-serving and, you know, drive politics. I think that also helps that wall be, be lower. I've seen people give up talent. So let's say you, you and I are peers and you have a need, like in most organizations, you know, I probably protect my top performers because I want to give them the next. Here, people will give up talent because you, they take an enterprise view and an enterprise mindset. So I do think, you know, a higher order purpose, the rotational culture, you know, being deliberate about what we value and making sure we're looking for that when we interview, attract talent. And then the last thing I'll call out, I, I mentioned humility and diversity. Diversity, not just, you know, race, ethnicity, but diversity of perspectives. You know, people are interested in what you think you know, diversity of opinions, right? Diversity of experiences. And there's a lot of mutual respect. So that fosters a certain, you know, kind of culture as well. And people are super humble. Peter, like, you know, I've, I've never, it's, it's always more we versus me. You'll see people, you know, giving credit to, to others as opposed to hogging the limelight or, or credit. So those are some of the things that, you know, I've found pretty unique across at least a set of companies that I've seen in my career. Yeah, very interesting, and especially in financial services, I might add. But no, what a, what a compelling overview of it. And I can understand why it was so attractive to you, Nitin. Um, you know, we've, we've spoken about so many trends already. You've talked about uh, use of cloud. You've talked about artificial intelligence and machine learning, generative AI. 
um, among others that you've already raised. Any others as you look to the future that have you particularly excited, Nitin, and where, where you're beginning to make some bets? Gen AI, we could have a whole we can have a whole <laughs> chat on that topic alone, but clearly that's if I look at what has the most promise, that remains high, not just you know for Vanguard, for the asset management industry, but I think for mankind overall. And you know, finally having a technology that can actually drive you know, measurable productivity. I think that's the potential of Gen AI. So I remain excited about Gen AI. Uh, we'll figure out how to safely, you know, use it. To your question, other technologies, tokenization is one I'm really excited about. Now I know blockchain has been, you know, around for a while, but I think using blockchain to create digitized version of real assets, you know, whether it's stocks, bonds, or real estate, that can shorten settlement times. It can reduce counterparty risk, right? you can lower your operational cost. And for some assets, you could even increase liquidity. You could potentially offer investors, or more investors access to something like private equity. You can lower the investment minimums. You know, you could make the pricing more transparent. You can reduce the barriers to exit by shortening or even eliminating you know, any lockup periods that typically come with those securities. So maybe the disruption in the public markets takes longer, but I do think tokenization in the private markets can actually expand access you know, for a broader set of investors. So uh, that's something we are actively experimenting with. We're also experimenting with augmented reality and virtual reality, Peter, specifically for virtual client meetings to actually some great feedback so far. So I don't know if that's going to go all the way to the metaverse, but I, I certainly think we'll have richer client interactions using AR and VR. And that's something we're experimenting with. And I mentioned quantum earlier. I do think uh, the intersection of quantum and AIML, you know, is going to be really interesting. We are talking about NVIDIA and GPUs, you know, today, but think about if we had qubits, GPUs, and CPUs, you know, that you can harvest in whatever ratio you want to drive really powerful AIML engines. So I think quantum computing is going to be a big game changer. I don't know where LK99, you know, stands as we speak, but maybe we don't achieve superconductivity today, but hey, at someday if we do, or if we get to, you know, stabler quantum computers, that'll be a big game changer. We know it's coming. It also has huge security implications, which we're also, you know, cognizant of and working on when it comes to store now decrypt later. But I think quantum is another technology that's on our horizon. If I could just ask you, each of them very interesting and, and great descriptions of them. I'd love to double click on the AR VR one for a moment, if you don't mind. Uh, what sort of interfaces have you been using since it requires a client involved as well? Yeah, um, is there a hardware component to this or a software component? I, I realize it's still a testing, as you say, it's not, and it's not full metaverse uh, as yet either. But um, what what form has that taken? The extent to which you can share? Yeah, so we, we are using we are using headsets, and we give yeah. our clients Quest headsets as well. I'm actually eager to try, try Vision because I've heard amazing things about it uh, when it when it comes out. Uh, but yeah, there is a hardware component, so we give our clients, you know, headsets. We use headsets as well. Good, good, very interesting. I also wanted to ask you, Nitin, as somebody who has. Uh, reached uh, great heights in multiple fields now, consulting as well as now in, in financial services. Uh, what, what some of the secrets to your own success have been as you reflect on your ascent? Uh, what have been some of the difference makers along the way that have propelled you forward uh, to the heights that you've reached? I don't know about great heights and great success, Peter. I just... <laughs> <laughs> You're too humble I, I, if you don't know it. I, 
No, no, I, I've just been incredibly lucky, Peter. So a lot of being in the right place at the right time matters. And, you know, I think I've, I've just been lucky. But if you if you ask me to distill like three difference makers, right? Like the first one clearly is like a strong mentor. So I've had three jobs. And in each one of those jobs, you know, I can point to someone, you know, who actively sponsored me, who coached me, someone who learned, who I learned a lot from, someone who thought and, you know, encouraged me to do things that I didn't think I was ready, ready for. And that is probably one of the biggest difference makers and, you know, di di distinct individuals in, in each one of those. A big reason for why I'm here today is John Mercanti, who both of us know, who was Vanguard's previous, you know, CIO. John played that role in my most recent when he was still at Vanguard. So a strong mentor uh, has played a big part, Peter. The second is amazing teams. And again, I, I'm not being humble when I say lucky. I have truly been very lucky. Like, you know, you just a chance to work with some amazing teams who I've learned from, who've supported me, and who've helped me in my own professional, you know, development. Many of many of those people, you know, I'm I'm friends with even personally as well. But I've been lucky to just have worked with amazing teams. And then finally, my wife, she's a fashion mer merchandiser, you know, by profession. It's starting with when I moved to the US, the 2002, we were in India, we moved to the US. She was working as a fashion merchandiser at, at a big buying house. She left all that, like that was her career, went back to school in New York to learn fashion in this country and got back in the job market. That's one example. The other one, she also played along with John, like she played a big part in me being here. Uh, so when I was making the decision between moving from Deloitte to Vanguard, she helped me expand my perspective and think about the opportunity in a different way, which was really helpful. But those are just two examples, but along the way, she's played a big part as well. I love that each of them are people-centric, uh, strong mentorship, great teams, and of course, perhaps the most important uh, decision anyone can make, a great partner in life. Uh, appreciate you sharing those perspectives, Nitin, uh, really, really profound to say the least. And, and uh, thank you so much for the conversation, more generally speaking. It's been a terrific one covering a, a vast array of topics representative of the remarkable innovation you and your team are driving at Vanguard and as a consequence for Vanguard's customers as well. Uh, thank you so much for taking time with me today. And it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Nitin. Pleasure is all mine, Peter. Thank you for having me.